0: The wrath of God poured out on the wickedness of the world is something that's been promised since the early days of the biblical narrative, and at the end of the tribulation, it finally happens. But what is the wrath of God? Who is it meant for? And how does God feel about it? We'll talk about it on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason welcome to faith by reason the website behind it all as always is faithbyreason.net there you will find hundreds of hours of study material blogs podcasts and videos and we are continuing our study of the book of revelation and we are nearing the end of the period known in christianity as the tribulation the seven last years of human and demonic rule on the earth with the pouring out of the wrath of God through the bowls of wrath, which again is one of the final things that happens because after this is the Armageddon and then the tribulation is over and we'll move on to the actual end game, the last few chapters of the book of Revelation and and the end of this entire biblical narrative that began with creation. Now in the last couple of episodes, we went through Revelation chapters 17 and 18, 17 highlighting the end of religion, and chapter 18 the end of economic control those are the two areas through which men and you know fallen spiritual entities have ruled and subjugated over humanity the two things that they've used to control humanity since the very beginning of our society has been religion and economics if you are the religious leader you control people through Fear and superstition and if you are the economic person or the the economic rulers then you control men's finances And we we see that a lot today, but I'm not gonna get into that. We've already talked about it in depth But those are chapter 17 and 18. We are actually going back now to chapters 15 and 16 And we went out order out of order specifically because 15 and 16 are the bowls of wrath Which I believe happened at the end of the tribulation period. However chapter 17 the end of religion happens at the midpoint of the tribulation So it should technically come before that in the narrative and chapter 18 kind of happens concurrently with the bowls of wrath. So I got those two out of the way. So now we are going back and we will finish chapters 15 and 16. So as I said in the, in the very beginning, the, the wrath of God on, on the wickedness of the world has been talked about throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where you have wide sections of certain books and sometimes entire books that are just dedicated to God speaking vividly about his anger towards evil and wickedness, both human and demonic, and what he plans to do about it. You look at the Psalms. There are many of the of the Psalms that are about God taking vengeance on evil for what they've done to the good people, to his people, to him himself, how they blasphemed his name and things like that. Isaiah has sections on that. Ezekiel does. Some of the so-called minor prophets, some of those shorter books, they are almost entirely about God taking his wrath out. You look at Joel. You look at Nehum, you look at Obadiah, and sections of Hosea and Zechariah and Zephaniah. All those books just go into depth in poetic language about God's anger, finally God's anger being poured out on the wickedness, but it hasn't of the world, but it hasn't happened yet. But it all happens in this final section in Revelation. Well, mostly chapter sixteen. Chapter fifteen is kind of, is a preamble. Chapter sixteen is the actual wrath. And for all of the talk about it, you think it will take a long time, and and but it doesn't. God does not revel in it. God does not want this to take a long time. We're going to talk about that quite a bit. That's one of the big themes of this episode: is how God feels about it, and how it, and how God's feelings about judgment and wrath differ from ours. And before I get too far into that, let's just start by going over the the, the verses we're going to cover today, and then we'll get into it. And because, again, as I said, I don't believe God takes a whole lot of time with this. I think his wrath happens really quickly in a matter of days, maybe weeks, my opinion. So I'm not going to take a whole lot of time with, um, with going over this. Either. So we're going to get through chapter 15 and half of chapter 16 today. So we're going to get through the preamble and the first three bowls of wrath. So let's just start by reading at um, Revelation chapter 15, starting in verse 1 in the New King James. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the Saints." Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and out of the temple came seven angels, having the seven last plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with gold bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever, The temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And the end of chapter 15, and now let's go on to chapter 16, starting at verse one. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl on the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the, angels of the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying even so Lord God Almighty true and righteous are your judgments and that is all we are going to cover today so before we break these verses down let's just talk a little bit about the wrath of God the judgment of God that he that's been stored up to to be poured out on the world at this time um we all understand the need for justice—we all desire justice, and part of God's nature is justice. God is always and completely right and just. He is Jehovah is one hundred percent righteous and one hundred percent just. Being one hundred percent just means that everything has to equal out. All the evil that was done from time immemorial, from the from day one, has to be balanced. Meaning that if you've done evil, it has to be punished. You have so it has to be made up for. When you do evil, you have harmed someone. You have taken something away from them and that has to be repaid. And that's what happens here. And again, we all long for it. But the way we see judgment and, and our desire for judgment is not the same as God's. Need see how God sees judgment and his desire for it. We want to see the people who have done us wrong, who have harmed us, who have harmed our loved ones. We want them to not only do we want them to, to pay for what they did, we want to revel in it. Let's just be honest we want to see it we want to enjoy it we want to say how look at you look at what happened to you see what you did now you're getting now you're paying for it and I'm not above this not at all I, I there are people it have been many people throughout my life who have caused me harm unfairly and who haven't paid for it as far as I could see and I trust that God is going to avenge me on them and he because he says vengeance vengeance is mine saith the Lord I will repay so I can only hope that God will repay them. People who've done me wrong personally, people who have done me wrong corporately. I mean, you look at not to get too political, but you look at the world we live in where you have these politicians and corporate leaders who are doing incredible harm to people who are intentionally poisoning people, poisoning our water and our air and our food supply all in the name of profits and corporations. I'm sorry, excuse me. And politicians taking money from these people knowingly, knowing that they're doing harm and they take take bribes from them in order to so that you know, so that they don't do the will of the people and stop the harm that's happening. And I mean, I could take it going on an entire diatribe about the harmness done by our so-called leaders, but they don't suffer for it. You know, most of our politicians retire very wealthy and they you know die in their mansions surrounded by their families. So these corporate leaders who are making hundreds of millions of dollars, well, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, while their low-wage workers can barely have enough to survive, they take a disproportionate amount of it. What do they have? What happens to them? They you know, invest their money and they die wealthy and happy, or you know, relatively happy. They don't seem to get the justice. So we have to assume—not just assume—hope and believe that they will be repaid. And but we want to see it happen. We want to enjoy it. We want to revel in it. We want to watch it happen. Uh, and the, right now, in my life, there's there's uh, you know someone who's harming my my own mother. My mother's in a situation now with someone who she thought was her friend who is doing her harm right now. And you know I'm trying to help her out with it, and it, it's caused a lot of distress in both of our lives. And I, what's happening to her is unfair, and I want the person who's causing harm harm her to, harm to her to suffer for it, because it's unfair. It's unjust. My mother's the sweetest person. I know. we all feel that about our mothers. My, but I, my, I believe my mom is a sweet woman who, would, who does not want to harm people. She is one of the most generous human beings I've ever known in my entire life. She gives and gives and gives and never asks for anything in return. And for someone to maliciously harm her the way this person is doing so, it's just, it angers me. And I want them to suffer for it. Here's the thing. That's not how God operates. God does not revel in the suffering. He in the suffering of the wicked in the punishment of the wicked he knows it has to happen he knows it he is just he is the source of justice however just because he's a source of it does not mean that it brings him enjoyment it is i would argue that judging um people and rendering his wrath unto them is probably one of god's least favorite things to do and that's not just my opinion let's look at what the bible says if we go to ezekiel chapter 33 it, it blatantly says in verse 11 Say to say to them as I live, says the Lord God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God does not take pleasure in harming the wicked. He does not take pleasure in judging him. God would rather they turn and repent. You know, let's think of the, the our our classic icon of evil, Hitler. You know, he, Hitler is the, is the epitome of evil. We want him to suffer, what he he did horrible things. World War II. You know, uh, the Holocaust. But you know. We want him, you know, to die and suffer for all the suffering he caused. But you know what God would rather have? God would rather have had Hitler repent and turn to him and become a Christian and live in heaven than to punish him. That's the opposite of what we feel. I'm going to be honest. There are people who I see in the world who are just horrible human beings. And again, I'm just going to admit that I'm not perfect. I, I don't want them to go to heaven. I'm just going to be honest with you. There are some people who I've seen doing horrible, terrible people, terrible things to people. And I'm like, I hope you go to hell. Again, yeah, it's not right. I, I admit that. I Again, I said, like I am not perfect. And my desires are not always the same as God's. I want evil people to suffer. That's not God's way. God would rather have the most evil human being to ever exist, turn to him and not suffer and go to heaven, than to be punished. And that's how he differs from us. So because of that, is my opinion and I will give some proof points throughout this uh, talk that it not only is it God's least favorite thing to do, he wants to get it out of the way. It is not where he wants to be. He is not going to take a lot of time in it with it. As much as we would like to revel in the slow (laughs) torment of uh, of our oppressors, God wants to get it over with. So I believe that these bowls of wrath that we're going to talk about in this episode and the next are going to happen very, very quickly because that's just God's nature. Not our nature. We would we would drag it out because I used to think that you know when I was growing up, studying Revelation and you know even you know up, up to very for, fairly recently, I've believed that the bowls of wrath encompass most of the second half of the tribulation. Most of the final three and a half years were were a drawn out effect of these bowls of wrath happening. But as I've come to know, continue to know God Jehovah even better, and and understand who he is and his personality. I believe the opposite. Now, I think, as I said a, a few minutes ago, I think these bowls of wrath are going to just happen one after the other really quickly in a matter of days, if not weeks, because God just wants to get it over with. Because this is not where he wants to be. He doesn't want to. His happy place is not punishing us. His happy place is is being in heaven with us. So We're going to talk about that some more. I'll give you my 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 proof points. So um, with that said, let's start breaking down these verses who are almost 50 minutes in. Well, it's going to be a long episode, so strap in. So chapter 15 starts with John saying he saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. So that couch is what chapter 15 is going to be all about. This is a sign in heaven, meaning that we don't take this purely literally. As, as I've said before, I err on taking the Bible literally or seriously where it warrants. But if it's clear that we're speaking a symbolic language, then I will take it symbolically. And this it says right here is a sign we see a sign in heaven. The last time we saw John write about a sign in heaven was Revelation chapter 12, where he saw the woman clothed in the sun with the, with the moon under her feet and the stars around her head. So we know this is a sign because a, a human woman could not be clothed in the sun. The sun is gigantic and would burn her to death very quickly. And same with stars and the moon. So this was a symbol that, that the woman clothed in the sun and the moon and stars, that was a symbol of Israel. So, all right, so, so again, this is all about signs. So we're going to try to interpret these signs. So he saw the seven angels having the seven last plagues, and for in them the wrath of God is complete. This first verse is an overview, because we're going to see these angels again. Uh, so this part is going to be repeated, at the towards the end of this chapter. So what he's saying, this whole sign is about the seven angels being given the seven last plagues. This entire chapter is a preamble to the angels giving these plagues, being given these plagues to pour out on the earth in the name of God, in the name of his wrath. Okay, moving on. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who had victory over the beast and over his image, they were standing on it. So there were people who have standing on this sea of glass mingled with fire. We'll talk about who they are in a second, but what does this sea of glass mean and why is it mingled with fire? We saw the sea of glass before back in revelation chapters four and five, this at the throne room in heaven. So we're back there. We are in heaven at the throne room of God and we see it, the sea of glass this sea of glass represents the mol- is, is not represents, but is a representative of so let me rephrase that. It is the same as the molten sea that we see in the temple. Remember that the, the temple, the physical temple of God that God commissioned Solomon King Solomon to build for him is actually a replica of the throne room of heaven. So heaven is not a replica of the temple. It's the other way around. The temple is a replica. Of the heavenly, of, of the heavenly host, of the heavenly throne and of the heavenly temple. So we in as part of the temple, in the outer court of the temple, before you actually went inside of the temple, and there should be a visual on the screen for you, there was an area called the Molten Sea. It was a huge bronze labor, almost like, basically a something the size of like an, an over an above ground swimming pool. If you ever seen one of those, and God help you if you have those, are like the worst things in the world. There's nothing worse than an above ground swimming pool. Ugh. Anyway, I'm showing my own prejudices here, but something the size of an of, of an above ground swimming pool, made completely of bronze or brass, and it was filled with water. So it was a huge water bath, and it was used to cleanse the priests. Why? Because the priests. When, and in the outer court is where they would slaughter the animals that were brought in for sacrifice. Remember, in the time of the Old Testament, before the death and resurrection of Jesus, their sins will be covered by slaughtering a, a lamb or a goat or a bull, depending on the type of sacrifice. That would be a sacrifice for their sins, of course, in preparation or or, or rehearsal, as it were, for Jesus bearing our sins with his blood. So the priest would slaughter the animals, and I've never slaughtered an animal personally, but I'm assuming it's a pretty, it's a pretty bloody and, and gory uh, exercise. You're going to get splattered with with blood, and and viscera and gore. Now you can now, so these same uh, priests can't go into the temple covered in, in this in all this uh, gunk. They've got to wash themselves in order to be holy and present themselves before God. So the way they would do it in this. Um, in, in the molten sea, in this bronze, this huge bronze laver, that's where they would wash themselves and cleanse themselves before they going in. So they would wash the blood, and remember that blood was took on the sins of the people. So they were, they were literally washing blood off them, of themselves, and figuratively washing themselves of the sins of the people. So that bronze laver is represents the sea of glass that, that we see. In the throne of God and we see it here again but it's mingled with fire what is fire fire is judgment that's how God judges God judges with fire and also the fact that the the molten sea is made of bronze is another aspect of judgment why because bronze is, is against a represent, representation of, of, of judgment why because bronze is the metal that could stand up to heat remember the the brazen serpent back in the book of Numbers that uh, people were being bitten by these snake uh, israelites were being bitten by snakes because of their disobedience to god and god and when they asked for god's help he did something very interesting he told moses to make a snake out of bronze and hold it up on a pole and if whoever looked on the snake would not on this brazen serpent would not die of the poison of the snakes they were bit with bit from this is a you know a a precursor to Jesus Jesus good because a serpent represents sin bronze represents judgment so they were looking upon sin being judged. that was a precursor to Jesus because Jesus became our sin for us and he was judged. and if we look upon him on the cross just as they were looked upon the the brazen serpent up on a pole they were saved just like we were saved so so now that so what does this mean this means that the sea of glass mingled with fire means that it's the washing of the sin and it's also judgment so the people standing on it have overcome when you stand on something it means you overcome it so there are people standing on the sea of glass mingled with fire they're, they're standing on top of the washing away of sin and of judgment who are they these are people who it says people who have victory over the beast the antichrist over his image his clone as we talked about it you, you have to go back a few episodes to, to the mark of the beast and to the false prophet to. To understand why I think he's a clone and over his mark and over the number of his name so these are people who have been killed because they wouldn't take the mark of the beast and wouldn't worship the beast they would not worship the Antichrist these are Christians but they are not the church keep in mind the church is not here at, at the end point of the at the midpoint of the tribulation the church is completely gone and we've talked about this before you can go to this section on the rapture and Understand my take on this. The believing church, the faithful and watchful church will be taken out of the earth before the the, this before the Antichrist is revealed. And and of course, the seven and of course, the uh, seven year tribulation and those who are not watchful, they they will be taken at the midpoint. There will be no the church will be gone, but there still will be believers. There will be people who did not believe before the rapture who will come to believe and they will, they will realize that the Antichrist is a maniac, that he's evil. And this, this small group of people will refuse to take his mark. They will turn to Christ. They will finally realize that they've been wrong all along and that Jesus is the way and they will suffer greatly for it. They will be killed for it. And they will be killed in mass. And it's a multitude of people here, but they're standing on the sea of glass. So why, because why are they standing on the sea of glass? Because they've been saved. They've been washed of their sins, but they've also been judged because uh, because they rejected Jesus during, bef- during the time of the church. They've been, they've gone through the judgment of having the antichrist kill them and they sang the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. What's significant about that? The song of Moses, we see that in the book of Exodus, the song of Moses, it's all about being delivered from the earthly power, which was at most of the time was a Pharaoh. Moses sang a song of deliverance when the Israelites were freed from Egypt. And at that time, the Pharaoh was the de facto ruler of the world. Egypt was the main uh, empire. And just like in, so in, in this time, in the time of the tribulation, you will have the Antichrist as the world leader and, they, and the people who are, have died here and are in heaven, they are the same as the Israelites. They've been delivered from the, um, the evil ruler of the world. So they will sing the same song as Moses. And also they think the song of the lamb and the Lamb's song is about salvation. So they are saved and they have been delivered and are free from the secular world power, which was the Antichrist. All right, moving on. And then after these things or Metatelta, one of our favorite words, behold, the temple and the tabernacle testimony of heaven was open. So now the temple is open. And remember, as I said before, that this temple in heaven, the temple on earth, the, the Jewish temple is modeled after this temple in heaven. So the temple is opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels. Remember, inside the temple is Jesus, is is, is uh, God's throne room. God's throne room is inside the temple in heaven. He sits on the mercy seat, which uh, you know you see a representation of. If you've seen the seat, whether if you've seen the ark of the covenant, the pictures of that, we have the two um, angelic beings with their wings, you know bowing down with their wings um, spread before them, and that's that's where. God sits. That's the mercy seat. So he's sitting there. So God occupies a temple. So you have these uh, seven angels coming out of the temple, coming out of God's presence. And they're clothed in pure bright linen, having their chest girded with gold bands. This is um, something, a way that angels have been dressed before. We've seen this in the past in the uh, last couple of chapters of the book of Daniel. When Daniel encounters a couple of angelic beings and they're dressed exactly the same way. Maybe these are a couple of the same angels dressed in white with the gold around them. So white means purity and holiness and gold is uh, it's a symbol of royalty. So these are these you know, royal, holy angels and they are directly from from God. And uh, it says then one of the four living creatures, one of the cherubim gave to the seven angels, seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. So the cherubim we encountered them also in Revelation chapter four. They were four creatures. One had the face like a man. One had was like an ox. One was like a lion, and one was like an eagle. They represented earthly life. You have one representing human human life, the face like a man. You had one representing uh, birds of the air, avians, the one which is the, the eagle. You had one representing herb, herbivores as an ox, and you have one representing um, carnivores which was the one who was, looked like a lion so which one of these living creatures which one of these cherubim and remember there's one cherub missing because there's one area of uh, heat of, of um, uh, earthly life missing and that is cold blooded scaled animals like fish and reptiles we talked before about that because we believe that I believe that that missing cherubim is the entity we call Satan because Satan is depicted as a dragon as a reptile so he, he was also called, in Ezekiel 28, he was called the anointed cherub. So Lucifer, Satan, whoever you want to call him, was at one time a cherub. So there were five cherubim, one representing man, one representing herbivores, one representing carnivores, one representing birds, and one representing reptiles. The one who represented reptiles, Satan, got kicked out. So that's why he's not here anymore. But so which one of the cherubim was this? Who We don't know. It doesn't say. My guess, and it's just a guess, and it's actually pretty academic. I would, I think it's the cherubim that looked like an ox. Why? Because these judgments, as we will see, are specifically towards fallen angelic entities and demons. Why would that be? In, why would an ox be representative of that? Because if you look in the Old Testament, many times for reasons, honestly, I don't completely understand these entities came, were manifested themselves or represented themselves as cattle. Don't know why, but they have. We see the bulls of Bashan. They're talked about in the Book of Psalms. Bashan is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is where the uh, fallen angels in uh, Revelation, excuse me, in Genesis chapter six came down and procreated with women, creating Nep- the Nephilim. You have the golden calf in the Exodus story, where you know Moses was up on Mount Sinai and the people got nervous, thought that God abandoned them, so they had Aaron make a, a golden calf for them to worship, and you you see it elsewhere throughout the Old Testament that these entities are represented by ox and cattle for some reason. Don't know. So that would be my guess. But it doesn't matter. It's, it's completely academic. If you want to do a deeper dive, go ahead. If you're, you know, a Bible geek like me, if not, then you know don't worry about it. It's, again, it's pretty, it's purely academic. Okay. The last verse of chapter 15 is really interesting in its implications. It says the temple was filled. So the, the So the the seven angels who come out of the temple, they're given the bowls of wrath by, by one of the cherubim. And then it says the temple was filled with the smoke of the glory of God and from his power. So God is in the temple and there's smoke of his glory. It it fills the temple. And it says here, no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Why is this significant? Because God is in the temple alone. No one is able to enter it. God is nearby there by himself. That is significant because this is the only time in the entire Bible where God is depicted in heaven alone by himself. Every other time God is depicted on his heavenly throne, in his heavenly temple. He is surrounded by multitudes of other entities, angels, the 24 elders, who I believe are the church, the seraphim, the cherubim. And not just a few I mean, multitudes, 10,000 times 10,000 and ta- thousands and thousands, which John says here in this very book. And you see it in Ezekiel. You see it in Isaiah. You see it in, in the book of Kings over and over again. Every time you see God in his heavenly throne, he is surrounded. Why? Because God likes being around other living entities. He doesn't like being alone. God does not enjoy being alone. He's always surrounded by others except here. Why? Why is this the time? So God is happiest when he's around people. So which means the opposite is true. He's at his least happy. He is the least happy when he is alone, but he's alone here. Why? Because he's doing something that he doesn't like doing. He is going to pour out his wrath and this is not something he enjoys. So he's in a, so he's put himself in a situation where he is doing something that he doesn't enjoy. And it's in a, in, in a, in a, in a space where he doesn't get, he gets no enjoyment. He is not surrounded by people he or, or by entities. He's alone. He doesn't like being alone. And so, which means he's doing something that gives him no pleasure. So that's another one of my proof points that God takes no pleasure in what's about to happen. And I think he wants to get it over with because he doesn't like being here. He doesn't like being alone. He doesn't like judging. He wants to get back, to being surrounded by his angelic host and by the people in heaven by his creation. He wants to get back to that as soon as possible, which tells me that he is not going to let this linger. All right, we're going to move on to chapter 16, but before we do a little preamble about who these bowls of wrath are for, they are not intended for human beings. Human beings will suffer. They will suffer greatly, but that's not God's will. I've said before, God does not want to punish man. God wants man to repent. In that verse from Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, he takes no pleasure in punishing the wicked. He wants them to repent. He would rather they repent. And one of my other proof points for why God doesn't like judging because he hasn't done it in so long. Keep in mind that technically God could have judged us. He could have rightfully judged the world Right after Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension, he Jesus had completed his work, uh, and maybe after Pentecost, and when people were preaching and had, when, when the disciples preached to people and gave everyone the opportunity to to uh, come to to belief in him, he could have done it any time. Remember the, the the prophecy in Daniel um, where the seventy weeks prophecy, prophecy where God said there are seventy weeks of a year, seventy shabu'liam seven. 70 weeks of seven. So 490 years are designated for man from to the end of sin into the completion of God's kingdom. So, so that seven, that uh, 490 years started from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Again, we're talking about uh, in, um, in Daniel chapter nine from that, from that decree to restore and build Jerusalem, the decree of Artaxerxes there'll be 483 years until Mashiach Nagib, the Messiah, the Prince Messiah, the King, which means and then after that to be seven, more, seven final years. So that that four hundred eighty third year happened when on what we call Palm Sunday, when Jesus presented himself as king and they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that should have been it. After that, if people had accepted Jesus, we've talked about this before, if they had accepted Jesus as their king, then that would have been it he would have been set up as the king. He would have brought in his millennial kingdom, which we'll talk about by three episodes from now, three, actually four episodes from now. And then it would have been the end of the world. And his new kingdom would have come. But of course, people he was rejected and he was crucified. So there's still seven years left. Now, those seven last years are, the, are what we call the tribulation. So there's been a gap between that 69th and 70th week, between that 483rd year and the last seven years. During that gap, it said in Daniel chapter nine, that the Messiah would be Karak, cut off, executed. And then, you know, and the temple would be destroyed. So it didn't specify how long that gap would be, but now we know that a gap has been 2000 years so far. We're still, the 483rd year is gone. We are in the gap between that 483rd year And that final seven years between weeks 69 and 70, that gap has lasted for 2000 years. Why has it lasted so long? Because God wants us to come to repentance in him. He has had, he's given us 2000 years of mercy. This could have and should have ended in the first century after Jesus presented himself as King and was crucified and rose again, but it didn't because God has given us 2000 plus years of mercy. But his mercy on earth won't last forever. Well, I don't think it's going to last much longer, but he doesn't he doesn't want to do it. So. So then if God does not want to pour out his wrath on us, who is his wrath meant for? It's meant for the fallen angelic beings and the demons, the spirit of the Nephilim angels. Why? Because angels can not repent. God wants repentance. Angels are not capable of repenting. Why? Because they have all the information we can repent because we can always claim ignorance. We don't know everything. We can always say, you know what, God, I made a mistake. Because I didn't know that what I was doing was bad. But now that I understand it, I can repent. Angels can't do that because angels have all the knowledge already. They already have the knowledge. They, they wantonly do evil. So there's no repentance for them. And furthermore, Jesus didn't die for them. So angels and demons, the spirit of Nephilim cannot repent. So they will, are the ones who are going to be judged. The only reason that there are human beings that will suffer alongside these angels, these fallen angels and demons is because they volunteered to be part of this Antichrist system. No one is going to, as we'll talk about hell like down the road a bit after the, uh, the the millennium, but no one is going to be in hell because God sent them there. God doesn't send anyone to hell. There's only, reason, there's only one reason people will be in hell because they rejected God's invitation to heaven. That's it. If you reject God's invitation to heaven, then that's the only reason you're going to be in hell. God does not send you to hell. God invites you to heaven and it's up to you whether you're going to take his invitation or not. Anyone who is there in hell is there because they chose not because they chose hell necessarily, but because they rejected God. So they de facto chose hell. So yeah. So the people who, who choose to be on the side of evil and take the mark of the beast voluntarily, they will suffer the consequences, But you also find as we'll see, um, as these balls are poured out, they actually affect. They don't just affect the spiritual world. They, they affect people physically, and I believe, again, as I said before, that when you take the mark of the beast, you are allowing it. You are allowing a demonic entity to inhabit you. Furthermore, I also think that these angelic beings. You know, because so so demons inhabit people and angels don't. And angels don't need to inhabit anyone. They can actually take on the form of humanity. They've done it before. Demons, who are, again, the spirit of Nephilim, they seek, demons always seek to be embodied and they will embody people who have taken the mark of the beast. But the angels will, fallen angels will also suffer because I believe they're going to be forcibly embodied when they are cast down to earth. Because if you look at uh, Psalm chapter 82, when God is, is, is rendering a judgment against the fallen angels. He says, you are Elohim angels, son of the most sons of the most high, yet you will die like men. What does it mean to die like men? Well, in order to die like a man, you have to suffer a mortal wound, which means you have to have mortal flesh. So I think that, again, this is something I, I just, uh, kind of, that just kind of occurred to me about, so I don't, I don't, haven't done a lot of research into it, but it appears that if this is true, that when the angels are finally cast down, and I believe that happens at the sixth seal, I've talked about that before. You can go back to the uh, to the episode on the, on the sixth seal. I, I believe that these angels are forcibly embodied, and they're given physical form, which can be harmed. All right, let's try to get through chapter 16. Uh, we're at 37 minutes. All right, let's go. So chapter 16, verse 1, he heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the angels, go out and pour your bowls of wrath on the earth. Whose voice is this? It's the voice of God. It's a voice from in from the temple. The only one in the temple right now is God. So God's in the temple by himself, unhappy because he has to do some unhappy work. And he says, go and pour it out. Let's just get this over with all my rage that has been stored up all my wrath. I I, it happens quickly. When God moves, he moves quickly. God does not linger. If if you've experienced God moving in your life, you know for a fact that when God moves, it happens like that. It happens quickly, instantly. God, God doesn't take his time. All right. And so the first bowl is poured out and a foul and loathsome sore came on those men who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped the image of the beast. So this is something that, again, specifically happens to the people who've taken the mark of the beast. So those who happen to still be alive, who have who have not been killed, which means that the Jewish remnant who realize the Antichrist is not their Messiah and they're on the run and they're hiding out. And anyone else who has turned to... to, to Jesus and, and hasn't been killed yet, they won't be affected by this. But if you take the mark of the beast, you're going to get a foul and loathsome sword. What does that mean? Foul and loathsome. I actually looked up the the, 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 the epistemology, the entomology of those words. And the loathsome it means it's hateful. You don't like it. And and, and, and in several, obviously you're not going to like it. But loathsome means you hate it. You loathe something means that really really hate and despise something. So they're going to despise these swords. Why? In other translations, it says that they're extremely painful. And that seems to be a pretty uh, consistent description. These are going to be extraordinarily painful sores, indescribably painful. Uh, I've never had really painful sores, unless you count. When I was in my um, early 20s and one of my first jobs out of college, uh, I ended up getting chickenpox as an adult, which is a terrible thing to have. I didn't have chickenpox growing up as a kid. I just never got it. Um, But at the office I was working in, one guy who I was working with, who was a complete idiot, decides to bring his daughter into work, and his daughter had chickenpox. And so this idiot, sorry, I keep using that word because he really was one, he brings his daughter there, and he says, well, as we're all gathered around doing our work, he says, hey, oh, by the way, everybody here has had chickenpox, right? Because, you know, my daughter has it. And I said, "Um, no, I haven't had chickenpox. Why would you assume that? Why would you bring your daughter who's contagious with a disease that is very harmful to adults to a workplace? And of course, the idiot did and I caught chickenpox and it was terrible. It was like three horrible weeks and I had sores all over. Because you know, chickenpox is t- relatively mild when you have it as a child, but it actually gets s- more severe the older you get and I Like I said, it was a terrible three weeks. I had a a fever of 106. I I didn't know if I was going to make it for a couple of days. But but all that to say, my (laughs) episode of chickenpox is not is nothing compared to this. Uh, That's the only experience I have. But it was terrible. They were painful. They were itchy. But these sores are going to be something beyond that. They're going to be extremely painful and also since they're foul. Foul means they're not going to smell good. They're going to smell bad. So you're going to be so if you've taken the Mark of the Beast, you're going to have these extremely painful, open sores all over your body and you're, and you're going to stink. You're going to smell bad. It's horrible. I, I can't imagine. But this is a reaction to what the Mark of the Beast does. And I've said before on, in the series on the Mark of the Beast and elsewhere that this mark alters your DNA. And that's not far fetched because we there there's a current treatment for a current a certain disease. And one the treatment for the disease and it's in the literature of this treatment says it alters your DNA. I can't be more specific than that because I got banned from YouTube for being more specific about this treatment and this disease. And I don't want to do that again. So, but you know what I mean? So the, technolo- the technology exists. But the thing is, when man tinkers with God's creation, he always screws it up. You cannot improve on God man is always trying to improve on god you can't do it and this mark of the beast will be man trying to improve upon god and trying to be like the the beast who could not be killed we talked about that before during the the series on the antichrist taking the mark of the beast is going to alter people's dna and this was going to be a side effect or at the very least is going to be the instrument through which god can judge you if you've taken the mark because now that your dna is altered i think god's going to use that alteration to cause the source to come upon you i think that so it's not just happenstance that it happens to the mark, people with the mark. beast, I think that mark and what it all does to alter your body is going to result in these horrible sores. All right, moving on to the next uh, bowl. Second angel poured his bowl out onto the sea and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. So this is truly, truly unimaginable. Now, remember when we went over the the seven trumpets, uh, with a, a couple of the early trumpets of also, turn, causes a third of the sea to turn to blood, but this is the entire sea, all the seas of the world, and it's the blood of the dead of a dead man. How is that different? Well, if you've ever seen the blood of a dead person, hopefully you haven't. Hopefully you haven't been around a corpse. But it's not the same as you know. If you cut your finger and you know, the blood comes out, a little bit of blood. It's 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 red and it's kind of viscous. That's the blood of a living person. It's red because the hemoglobin, which carries the oxygen that we breathe in reacts with the iron in the blood and makes it that reddish color. Well, when a person dies, well, they're no longer breathing, obviously. So they're no longer bringing in the oxygen. And so it doesn't have that bright, vivid red color. Now the iron actually kind of starts to degrade and it turns the blood into a dark purple, almost black color because, you know, and the blood doesn't stay, you know, viscous and flowing like it does in a living person or or a person who's only recently deceased it actually separates the blood, uh, the the blood cells separate from the plasma. The plasma of the blood is actually a clear kind of yellowish liquid. And that's the medium through which the blood cells flow. And as long as you're alive, you know, they're kind of mingled together. But when you die, the blood platelets separate from the blood cells. And that's why, by the way, the, when Jesus was was crucified, the soldiers took stuck a spear in his side and blood and water came out. He didn't um, stick this. He wasn't being sadistic when he stuck. Well, not completely sadistic when he stuck the spear in Jesus's side, he was trying to make sure Jesus was dead. And when blood and water or rather plasma, when blood and plasma came out separated, it showed that Jesus was dead because his blood is separated. That's what happens when you die. Your blood separates and that. And so you have that plasma, which is, you know, liquid and watery, but the blood, uh, the, the, the blood cells, the platelets become thick and sludgy, almost like tar. And, of course, it stinks. Have you ever smelled a dead body? Hopefully you haven't. But I've smelled, you know, dead animals and whatnot. It smells horrible. So you can have the entire oceans of the world filled with this thick, sludgy, dark purple, black blood. And it's going to be horrible. It's going to stink terribly. And every living creature in the sea is going to die. And what's interesting about this, in addition to, um, you know, to just it being just unbelievably horrific, is that it's... It makes up for something to happened during the flood. Remember, during the flood, only um, land creatures died. The sea, the sea creatures didn't die in the flood. What? Why? Why didn't they need to? So. They they to live and breathe in water, so fish and and aquatic animals didn't die. This now they do. Why? Out of many reasons. Uh, obviously, the, it's, it's, it's plague, this plague just completely destroys the World, world makes it uninhabitable. In a, in a short term, which is, again, why I think these things happen quickly. If all the oceans of the world turn to the to, to blood of a dead man, the Earth is, is only have about a few weeks left before it's just completely un, unable to sustain life. So this could not happen over a long period of time. And also the sea, as we've talked about before, is a place uh, where uh, demons are imprisoned and where, and where they're punished. So this is also taking care of these some of these demonic realms, though so they're all destroyed here why blood what well, we're going to find out why with the next plague so the the third angel pours his bowl out onto rivers and springs of water and they become blood oh by the way let me just go back about the sea really quickly there's some uh, bible teachers and secularists who try to soften this plague by saying that the sea is being talked about is just the mediterranean sea that john being a an Israel, an Israelite living in the Mediterranean, he would, the, the quote unquote, the sea to him would just mean the Mediterranean because that's you know that was the main body of water in that area. And yeah, I guess there's a possibility, but it wouldn't make any sense because every other one of these plagues is worldwide. It makes no sense that all, that all the other plagues are worldwide, but this plague only represents, only um, uh, affects a small, a relatively small body of water. It doesn't, it's, it's just, this is people trying to make God nicer than he is. They're trying to make God fit into their image instead of letting themselves be in the image of God. So now I think it affects all the seas of the world. There's no precedent. There's, there's no reason to believe it. It, it. It's only the Mediterranean. All right. So third bowl, third and last one we'll be talking about. He poured his his uh, bowl onto the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So now, so the, all salt water is the blood of the dead man of a dead man, and now all fresh water turns into blood so folks there's no water left there's no water to sail on there's no water to drink and so once again this tells me that this happens very quickly at the end of the tribulation because people can't the all life would end in a matter of days without water you can't you can you know go without food for you know a couple months it's not comfortable but you can do it you can't go for a week without water so these so this is another reason why i believe these plagues happen quickly and it all turns to blood. Why? Well, there was an entity called the Angel of the Waters, who says you are righteous, O Lord. He gives this whole poem that I read earlier. It said, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is their just due. So that's why blood is part of this plague, because it's justice. These evil entities, these evil human beings, these evil entities who've inspired evil in human beings, have spilled blood for millennia starting with the first innocent blood shed the blood of 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 abel from his brother cain all the way to the day after tomorrow gallons and millions of gallons of innocent blood have been shed sometimes in the womb i'm not gonna get into the politics of that and of abortion and stuff like that but blood has been shed innocent blood's been shed and this is their just due now you have blood to drink you want it. You reveled in blood like the, the the whore of Babylon was drunk on the blood of the saints. OK, you want to be drunk, drunk on the blood of the saints. You have nothing to drink but blood. Here's a couple interesting things that I'm going to wrap this up with. So the angel of the waters and it was the one who talked about why it was just for people to be judged by blood. Interesting thing. Number one, that there's an angel of the waters. Isn't that interesting? And, but not surprising. I think we found throughout the Bible that there are angelic beings who are over, who, who have authority over certain parts of creation. You know, we have here the angel of the waters. We found earlier in uh, Revelation chapter 7 that there are uh, angels over the wind. The four angels sit on the four corners or quadrants of the earth holding the four winds of the earth. Uh, we're going to see in, uh, in the next um, episode there's an angels over the sun. So there's probably an angel over mountains. There's probably an angel over the prairies and grasslands. There's maybe an angel over the moon and an angel over ice. Who knows? But I I found that interesting. But what's more interesting is what this angel said. Not just what the angel says, but what it implies. He says, you're righteous, O Lord. So he's basically he's justifying God. He says. you know, your righteous, O Lord, the, the one who is, who was and is to be because you judge these things, so forth and so on. And then there's another angel in verse seven who says, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Why are they saying this to God? Honestly, yeah, you can say it's praise and he's worthy of it, but why are they saying it now? I think they are offering emotional support because, again, God doesn't like doing this. So if you read it from that standpoint, keeping in mind that this is not something God enjoys, it would make sense that these angels who, who love God, who worship him, who minister to him, are there supporting him. God is doing something he doesn't like to do. He knows he has to do it, but he doesn't like doing it. these angels are saying, it's okay, God, you know, you are still righteous and holy, you are being just, you are doing the right thing. We know you don't like it, but you are righteous. Even so, Lord almighty true and righteous are your judgments. You are doing the right thing. We support you. They're offering him support. Not because God's weak, of course, but God has emotions. He has feelings. He is a living. He's a, he's a, he has sentience. He feels happy. He feels sad. He feels angry. He feels joy. He feels pleasure. He feels pain. So it, it makes sense that he's being, he's being offered emotional support by his close creations. And that's what they're doing here. They're offering him support. They're saying it's you're justified in doing this. Don't feel you know, you feel bad, but don't you're doing what's right. You're doing what's righteous. You're being who you are. You are being the God that you are and they're all supporting him. And I think that's actually a beautiful thing. All right. So that's going to wrap that up. We're going to deal with the last four bowls in the, uh, the next episode because there are some doozies in there and they're going to require a lot of explanation. So, um, yeah, so next time we will go through bowls four through seven and that will set up Armageddon, the the big final battle. It's not actually a battle. Um, it's, it's like one of those, the old saying, like it was a fight and there were two hits and I hit him and he hit the ground. It's going to be that kind of fight, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So, um, yeah, we're almost an hour, So I got to wrap this up. Okay. So thank you for listening and watching. I appreciate it. Uh, Please subscribe to Faith by Reason by going to faithbyreason.net and putting your name and putting your email into the right navigation area. You can subscribe on whatever video channel you happen to be listening or watching this on. If it's if I'm still on YouTube, you can subscribe there. If I'm someplace else, you can subscribe there as well. And I will talk to you next time when we wrap up the bowls of wrath, which complete the judgments of God.